Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Phil Fogg, president and CEO of Marquee Companies. The Milwaukee, Oregon-based company's umbrella includes 28 senior living and skilled nursing facilities, along with a managed care division, rehab, and a long-term care pharmacy. Marquis' long-term care pharmacy was able to complete the first and second phases of its vaccine rollout for its senior housing communities by mid-January, which was weeks ahead of other providers. Although that was an advantage for the company's senior housing communities, Fogg also says the pharmacy benefited from the fact that it was so closely aligned with the provider group. Looking ahead, Fogg believes that demand for assisted living will help those providers regain occupancy more quickly than skilled nursing providers, who face a steeper uphill climb. But he wonders about the size and the scope of the recovery. Before we get to that interview, I wanted to promote our next Build conference happening in Chicago on November 17 and 18. Build is an annual event dedicated to the latest trends in architecture, design, and innovation for senior living owners, operators, and developers. Hear how industry players are redefining senior living development and planting their stakes now to reshape the future. Be sure to visit seniorhousingnews.com events for the latest updates on Build and our other scheduled events. Now, here's my interview with Phil Fogg, President and CEO of Marquee Companies. Phil Fogg, thank you so much for joining me on Transform today. I wanted to start with sort of an overview because I know that Marquee Companies, I know that the umbrella includes a few different entities. So I guess sort of briefly give us the overview and how all the different pieces fit together from, you know, Marquee, the the senior living operator versus Consonus, the pharmacy and, and all the things in between. Yeah, you know, if you go back into the 90s, you know, we started in Oregon and the Medicaid rate system in Oregon was one of the worst in the nation. And it just as a matter of survival, I started diversifying into rehab, later pharmacy, just as an economic driver. Then the Affordable Care Act comes into place in the year 2009-10. And now all of a sudden, the ability to manage post-acute care episodes becomes really critical. In order to do that, it was very helpful to have a network of services. And um, so today, you know, we break up that network into our facilities and our home health care. And our facilities are skilled assisted living, a little bit of independent and some memory care. And then we have a managed care division where we actually have a Medicare Advantage ISNP and our own physician and, and uh, advanced practice services. And then to complete that, we also have our ancillary services, pharmacy and rehab. We're going to be going to the diagnostic side. And the ability to control and manage all of those services together and to be able to get the leaders working together in a manner that helps people live the best rest of their lives is a really uh, cool thing from my perspective because it, we eliminate a lot of the dysfunction between a lot of those areas that, are, that is in the world, in our normal operating world. And by being able to have leaders across those services working together for common objectives, whether it's quality objectives and or whether it's having an understanding of the financial levers, it's been a really cool thing for us. 
And I want to, I want to talk about some of the advantages of that. Before I do, though, I actually want to ask you how COVID went. So I know that you have 28 senior living and care communities. How did they fare during the COVID-19 pandemic? Obviously, this was a challenging time, um, but maybe what was what was most challenging over the past year? And then maybe what are you most proud of? Yeah, I think um, to say, it, you know, it's a challenging year is an understatement for, for everybody. We certainly had our outbreaks. We had our challenges. I think that we felt like we threw every resource possible at it. And even then, when we were in communities with high case counts, we couldn't keep it out of the buildings. And it was incredibly frustrating. I think that the mental, physical, and emotional toll that it took on leaders and staff was probably the biggest challenge. I frankly can't even imagine if the vaccine had not come out when it did. I can't even imagine what today would look like. You had people getting near the end of their breaking point, and it couldn't have come at a better time from from my perspective. I think the things that I would be most proud of, though, is uh, we made a decision early on to have our home office and all of our support services come to the office every day. There was certainly a, a few people who had health risks that did not, but I'd say 95% of our staff came physically to the office. And, and I'm proud of that because it was hard for me to justify why we'd have all of our people going to the facilities, our therapists going to rehab clinics, our pharmacists coming in, home health people working in the homes, and yet we couldn't come to the office. And the benefit of that was, uh, I think much more timely decision-making. We were able to adapt to the millions of changing regulatory things. And, and so I'm, I'm quite proud of that. I, I think that um, some of the fiscal decisions that we made over the last 30 years put us in a position to have the tolerance to get through, a, a, the financial tolerance to be able to get through a, a, a black swan event like COVID-19 pandemic. And then, you know, just our leaders and our staff we're rock stars and champions. And, uh, you know, it's very, very hard for me in this post kind of COVID, if you will. I know we're not completely out of it, but to already see the Hill judging and questioning and attacking our profession is very hard for me to stomach emotionally, knowing the sacrifices and the things that our profession endured. And there's, there's, well, and I understand the world we live in and the politics of it all, but it's like uh, none of you could have endured what my leaders dealt with. None of you could have endured what our staff dealt with. You would have quit. And it's a lot easier to be the, the Monday morning quarterback, but it, yeah, it makes me, it makes me angry. I, 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 you know, just, it's very frustrating. You know, you and I have talked a little bit about how with Consonus, with, with your pharmacy operations, how that helped you stay sort of nimble in your own vaccination clinics. And then I know that you've also got a lot of clients that you were able to, to help with their own vaccination clinics. So tell me, how did having, I guess, first off, this in-house pharmacy company, how did this help when you were vaccinating your own communities? And then I guess just more generally, tell us about you know the the heavy lift that the pharmacy had to do to vaccinate all of its clients. Well, our long-term care pharmacy division was one of only seven long-term care pharmacies in America to to get the vaccine. And again, the combined efforts of of uh, those pharmacy leaders being champions and understanding how critical it was that that a long-term care pharmacy that understood the population and the facilities 
would be the one to actually bring it to the facilities as opposed to relying on a retail pharmacy. It was the driving force for us to say, we got to get it. We can get it to our buildings faster. We can get them to the buildings more effectively. And I'd say, you know, I would kind of reverse what you said. It wasn't so much that the facilities benefited from the pharmacy. It was the pharmacy benefiting from the fact that it's so closely aligned to a provider group that it gets the customer perspective every hour, every minute, every day. And that's what enabled us to affect a distribution plan that, that, you know, got the vaccine started on December 21st and, and completed a, you know, 50,000 vaccinations over, you know, the phase one process. So, you know, it was just a, a massive, massive team effort on that pharmacy, but it was, you know, it's for a pharmacy, a long-term care pharmacy, when you don't often see the faces of the customers and then you go to a clinic and people are cheering, crying, you know, it's, it really reinforces the meaning and purpose of what they do. Now that you've gone through a number of these clinics and you've, you've got an even deeper perspective of what makes these work, I know that there's, there's, you know, still senior living providers who are going through their vaccination clinics. Do you have any advice for them as they are going through this? You know, consent rates with staff are obviously the most critical goal or objective that that you need to have. And, you know, I think across the nation, I saw a stat from ACA yesterday that was 39% of the staff have consented. We I think you, I may have talked to you, but we have about an 82% consent rate. But I, I just think it's getting as much informed information to your staff before a clinic from people that they trust and to help them understand why the consent rates are very, very important to the people we serve. I think if you can do that and you get leaders and facilities who are very, very supportive of the vaccine, you will see your consent rates uh, higher. But, you know, we utilized medical directors and our company nurse clinical teams that the facilities are used to seeing all the time and operations people, but we tried to use trusted faces with real messages and didn't try to force people. We didn't, you know, creating negative incentives or, you know, disincentives. We just said, make an informed decision. And uh, because there's a lot of disinformation out there. And, and, uh, and I think, I've, you know, I've said in many environments from the beginning of COVID-19, we chose not to expend a lot of time or energy on the, you know, the people that just couldn't handle anything emotionally. It just was not good use of time. Those were two percent of our population or staff, and and the same thing with the vaccine. It's like there's going to be a group of people that are just so adamantly opposed to it that it's like okay, they're spending time in debate isn't worthwhile. It's spend the time on on informing people who are who are open to the information. And by the way, Tim, if I could just say, yes. I don't know if you saw the ACA information yesterday, but um, cases are down ninety six percent. I did see that. So and that's, that's that's awesome. It's working. I mean, it's just it's working beyond anything we could have ever imagined. And I think that, you know, in, in environments, you know, I, I, I want to say this because I think there's states and counties and, and areas where they're still seeing small outbreaks or cases. And it's like, well, and they're asking why, you know, what's still going wrong? Well, I can guarantee you that it's the consent rates and it's the staff participation rates that are enabling these outbreaks to still occur. 
Do you have any thoughts on, on mandating the vaccine? Obviously, you, you all have had pretty high rates without having to do that. Just on a personal level, it, do, it doesn't feel right to me. But if, if it was going to be mandated, the federal government would need to mandate it. There's a lot of ambiguity on an employer's ability to even do it. There would need to be a clear federal requirement that would reinforce an employer's decision in order for it to actually be effective, in my, in my opinion. So something that, as we've been talking, something else I've been curious about. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, all, all of the different healthcare services that you offer and the pharmacy. So I'm curious, when you look at Marquis, do you see Marquis as primarily a healthcare services company with with some senior housing, or do you see this as a senior housing company and you just have a very robust, you know, healthcare services business on the side, or is there another way that you see this? Yeah, I see us as. Uh as we manage, we're a population health management group, and we manage people that, and, and I steal a lot of my stuff, by the way, from being mortal with a, a toilet Gerwandi, but we manage two populations. We manage a post-acute care, post-acute episode population, and we manage long-term living people within long-term care settings. And that's what we do. And whether we're providing uh, post-acute care in a skilled nursing facility, long-term care in a skilled or assisted living, home health care or private duty, whether we're doing an ISNIP, whether we're providing the physicians, the drugs to these environments, the rehab, that's what we do. We're managing that population. And anything that enables us to do that and achieve the triple aim goal of creating efficiencies, better customer experience and satisfaction, and better quality outcomes we're going to probably try to own ourselves and do it ourselves. Over the course of the pandemic, I've talked with quite a few senior living providers who have told me sort of anecdotally that they think that resident acuity levels have really grown during the pandemic, which I think makes sense on a logical level to me. I know Marquis has facilities on the higher acuity side. I also know that you have some on the you know independent living side as well. Have you noticed that residents are now coming into senior housing with a higher level of acuity? You know, I'd probably say it a little bit differently. I don't know that people are coming in with a higher level. I think that the average acuity level has risen because the lower acuity people during COVID, their families, their spouses, their kids, their responsible parties made sacrifices to not bring them into the facility during COVID. They spent dollars on home, private duty home care, home health services. They made personal sacrifices and became caregivers they did things to keep those folks from being admitted to the facility. That is what then created a higher average acuity level, if that makes sense. That does make sense. What about needs-based demand and, and, and occupancy? How did that hold up during the pandemic? And I ask that because, again, anecdotally, I've talked with senior living providers who have said on the needs-based side, we feel like demand was more robust. What, what, what were you seeing? I'd say the same thing. I, I mean, it kind of goes along with my previous answer that the admissions we got were truly the needs-based um, admissions. In fact, depending on what your region or state is, if you saw a 16 to 22% reduction in your post-acute care population, it's probably a pretty good indicator of, in any environment, what would be the true need versus maybe not. And so it's, it's kind of interesting when you kind of look at policymakers and this and you hear discussions around trying to do skilled at home 
you know, you know, things like that. It's like, well, how, how much of that could you do? Well, maybe 16 to 22 percent is kind of an answer we now know if that if that makes sense. And uh, because uh, that's what we saw when people were willing to make really big sacrifices. That was the amount that the need overrode the, the demand. I also want to talk with you a little bit about the future. And I think the, the hot topic of the day right now is this ongoing potential recovery. And I've talked with senior living providers who have said, yes, we are seeing more leads. We are seeing more inquiries. Not as many have told me, though, that that has translated into occupancy yet. So I guess in terms of your 28 senior housing and care communities, are you seeing signs of recovery in your markets? And if so, you know, tell us more about what those signs might be. Yeah. So let me back it up to just say, you know, we were in December and COVID was going crazy, even though the vaccine was there, the the hospitals, you know, had some of their highest COVID unit occupancies. You know, our perception is that the hospitals, as they close those down, they began to really escalate the pent up demand for elective surgeries. I think that I don't know when that pent up demand goes away, but we've been seeing and I, I separate this into three groups. I believe that the post-acute care admissions will go back. I think there'll be a little bit of an increase as the pent-up demand for the elective surgeries get satisfied, but that the post-acute care admission rates will go back to where they were pre-COVID. And I think that you'll see providers recover the facilities that are the nicer facilities, that have better quality, that have better reputations will recover faster than the older, you know, more challenged buildings. I think, though, that the long-term nursing facility loss in census is could be a new normal. That if you were in a building that had a large erosion in your long-term living in the nursing facility, I think that's going to be a much more challenging recovery scenario. And we've essentially done planning and kind of just rebudgeted in those environments to say, how are we going to operate this building if it lost you know, 15 to 20 residents, what's going to change. And then there's a third, which is the assisted living or community-based care environment. And I, again, think that those folks will recover. I think that, again, I believe there's a large pent-up demand where families were making sacrifices before, you know, admitting mom or dad into a assisted living facility during COVID. And I think you're going to start to see that come bounce back more quickly. It's that long-term living nursing facility that I think is going to be the permanent damaging impact to to occupancy. In terms of timing, you know, when we talk about the pent-up demand, are you? I've heard a lot. Second half of this year, I think that's probably still just an educated guess. But do you have any thoughts in terms of the timing of of any of this? The pent-up demand, I would expect to be for the assisted living environment would be the next 90 to 120 days if it's if it's there as as visitation and is reestablished and you know group dining and activities and life goes back to normal as soon as the consumer marketplace feels comfortable i think you're going to see that come back really fast but it's got to get to a point where the consumer understands what's happening and that the risk is gone of outbreaks when that happens you'll see that recovery and and we'll be able to then really understand you know what was it are we getting a five percent recovery are we getting a ten percent are we getting a fifteen percent i i do not know so i i think that the skilled side i think the question that i have is when will we go back to normal admission patterns 
and how much of what we're seeing today is actually, again, just that pent up demand for the elective surgeries. I, I don't know how long that'll be. That could be June, July, that the, those are exhausted. I, one of the drivers that I look there is, you know, physicians have had their economics damaged as surgeons have had their economics damaged and they're going to want to get as much done as they possibly can do as well. I want to talk about something else that that has been a big topic during this pandemic, and that is the use of technology. You know, I think it's clear that that this industry is using technology in new ways, using more technology, you know, things like telehealth and just ways to connect residents with their families via you know remote conferencing like Zoom or FaceTime. Is this something that you see, though, lasting, you know, well into the future? I know that some of this also hinged on, you know, things like CMS waivers. Do you think that 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 trend will last? A couple of things I'd just start with is throughout COVID, there were a lot of emerging services and companies early stage who tried to use COVID to raise capital or to justify their business model. And I there are many of those that I do not think are going to be sustainable in a post-COVID world. The second thing I'd say is that my brother has a lovely saying, which is economics drive behaviors. So you hit one economic factor. If, if there's a payment source for telehealth for a physician uh, or an advanced practice professional, you could see it get utilized on an ongoing basis. But at the end of the day, Telehealth is going to have to create efficiencies or enable productivity or to save dollars. Since you brought up telehealth, I'll just use it as an example. I have a challenging time getting my, our model of care is that we employ our own physicians and NPs and PAs. They're in the facilities a half day to a full day every day. The need for telehealth for them is not, is not huge. However, we serve assisted living facilities where if somebody falls at 10 o'clock in the evening and they need to be assessed, instead of sending them to the emergency room, it would be better to use telehealth to, to have somebody do an assessment. And uh, so there could be things that come out of this. You could see behavioral health experts and clinicians use telehealth more effectively. Wound care, you know, there's certain specialists that I think it could be really good for, but on, in terms of broad, broad adoption, I would question that. So we're seeing more providers use things like Medicare Advantage, for example, to pay for for connecting families and their residents or, or telehealth to MA to pay for telehealth services, things like that. That's something that that until I think the the waiver, the CMS waivers were issued earlier in the pandemic, that's something that providers couldn't do, I think, unless they were in rural areas or they had some other specifics. So I guess what I'm asking is, there are new avenues to pay for some of these things and providers are taking advantage of them. Do you expect, though, that that will be the norm going into the future? I would say the litmus test is, does it achieve the triple M goals? Does it achieve those objectives? And so when you look at any of those things, is it creating efficiencies is it improving customer satisfaction or experience and or is it improving care up, quality outcomes? And if it is, I'd say any of the options, the flexibilities to get better outcomes in a more effective way is a really, really good thing. And so I'm, I'm completely supportive of it. And I do expect more creativity in those areas. And I, I'll give you a perfect example is, you know, we talked about this idea of the skilled at home, you know, deal, which may, as we said, it may be. 16 to 22% of the discharges might be able to do it. But I can tell you, I've done the math on it. 
And it all of that hinges on an individual and or their family being able to pay for private duty home care to support the person into the home. Now, Medicare Advantage says you have the option of supplementing it with private duty home care, and it can be done more cost effectively than an inpatient SNF post-acute care stay, then that then you know people would affect that because the person might be happier in the home. If the care outcomes are equal or better, that'd be good. And then if the cost is lower than going to the skilled facility, then that might be a sustainable change, you know, that could happen for a small part of the population we serve. I know that that throughout this pandemic, the federal government has provided, in some cases, some very crucial aid to senior living providers. You know, I know I, I can think of many providers that used PPP loans, for example. I also know that this industry can be very wary of taking federal dollars because they also expect maybe some oversight to come along with that. It also seems to me, though, that there's sort of a trade-off there. You know, on the one hand, this is crucial funding. And, you know, if, if you can get crucial funding and, and, and help your community thrive, especially now, that's great. But obviously, the, the oversight is, is another question. So uh, I guess my question to you is, do you sense that the in the traditional senior living world that there is a changing sentiment about accepting, you know, federal aid and, and maybe some oversight I think there was, uh, could have the number wrong, it was $100 billion that the profession got over the last 12 months in three tranches. The profession would have, you know, I bet 60% of the providers would have been in bankruptcy if they had not gotten those dollars. So the provider assistance funds from CMS were absolutely crucial to just being able to survive. I'm not sure what percentage could justify it before the end of the year, but we were certainly one of the groups that could justify all of our private, private uh, provider assistance funds. I think through November, we, we were able to consume them all. We took very aggressive testing actions that were very expensive and occupancy erosions and staffing and all those things were, enabled us to consume it fast. We did not use the PPP dollars itself. Now, going off into the future, it is my personal uh, opinion that the issue of regulatory mandates is is uh, a real challenge for our profession. It is very hard to support new quality initiatives or new requirements if they're not aligned to some payment. And if you're in a state, and, and over half of our states are materially underwater between what allowable costs are and what they're paid by their state, and you're in a state where you're already losing 15 to 40 dollars per patient day and now they want to throw on 24-hour rn mandate or uh, full-time ip positions no reasonable prudent business person could ever agree to that and yet if you're on the hill it sounds like we're opposed to these things it's not that the profession is opposed it's that we'd be signing our own death warrant because it would bankrupt you uh, minimum staffing our you know proposals. The answer to this, Tim, is that CMS needs to guarantee that there are no unfunded mandates. They could do that simply by requiring a test of the states when they do their state plan amendment uh, applications, which I believe is every three years, to demonstrate that 90% of the facilities in their state are getting covered at 100% of their allowable costs. 
I, to any normal person to say that somebody's going to get their allowable costs covered doesn't seem unreasonable to me. And if they would do that, then any inflation that could be incurred because of increased regulatory mandates would not drive providers. They would be supportive of them because they knew, they would know there would be predictability in their payments. I would tell you that that same test needs to get applied to the Medicare Advantage world, where you've got we're one of the only provider groups in America that is funded at less than the Medicare fee schedule. And um, it's because they have negotiating power over the providers. And yet, it's unlike other environments. These providers have all these mandates that they've got to comply with. And yet, the United Healthcare's of the world and other providers are out trying to pay materially less than what the Medicare fee schedules are. And uh, there needs to be, in addition, a federal test on that or a standard to make sure the providers are being funded fairly. If we were able to get those things, we now get into an environment where instead of just saying no to everything, we can be a part of a yes. And we can do then in what's in the best interest of the population that we serve. But until that happens, it's a really challenging environment. And it's very frustrating to sit in a Hill hearing and listen to advocates, you know, wanting change and wanting and even frankly, sometimes going, yeah, I think that would be a good change. I'd love to do that. But if I did that, 60% of the states in America would have their providers go bankrupt next year. Phil, I, I, we, our time is almost up, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about, about how you all are growing your, your senior housing operations. So in terms, of, uh, in terms of Marquee as a senior housing operator, how do you see that business growing over the coming months and you know, into the next year? And then just more generally, what is next for you all? In terms of our senior housing, we take a very uh, slow growth you know, methodology. First of all, we're trying to really most of our stuff is new development. I, I want to have a product that the boomer consumer wants to be at. And I believe that from a competitive standpoint that not only can you differentiate yourself with the consumer market, but even with the workforce environment would, I think, you know, rather be in brand new facilities or newer buildings. And so uh, that's our general approach is that we look for environments where we can build new skilled and assisted living and independent capacity and, and be in a competitive position that enables us to, to thrive. You know, it's there's those opportunities don't abound, you know, they're and, and then you've got CN restrictions and, you know, other things. And so it's a little bit of a, it's a much slower growth approach, but that's the way that, that we will do it. And, you know, the facilities are quite challenging from, you know, leadership perspective and, you, you know, not outpacing our ability to develop leaders is really important to us. So anyway, that, that's our, our approach to this. Big picture from our perspective, it's to continue to become experts on being able to manage the populations that we serve and to take and control the environments that they're in to the extent that we can and the services that are provided them so that we're getting, again, the, the highest outcomes, customer satisfaction, and most efficient use of resources as possible. And so developing a technology platform that enables us to know where our managed care members are at all the time and to get alerts if there's any changes in conditions so that we can get the right person or clinician to intervene or to take action when it's needed. One of the things that I learned about being in, when we got into the Medicare Advantage space was that managed care companies don't manage care. They look at 90 to 120 day claims data 
and look at the cost of that claims data, and then they try to take actions to reduce those costs. But they're not really managing the care. They outsource that to PCPs and other groups. And to really manage care, you've got to be right in the right place at the right time to help stop negative outcomes and or costly events that can be stopped. And uh, so creating a technology platform that enables us to do that and to be able to interface with all of our network of providers, whether we own them or don't, and to be able to get the right information to the right people at the right time, that's kind of where my next passion is going to be so that you know we can truly, truly change the way that we serve our populations. Well, I think those are good words to end it on. And uh, thank you so much for coming on Transform. I thought this was a great interview. So Phil Fogg, thank you so much. Thanks. Have a great day. That does it for this episode of Transform. I would again like to mention our upcoming build event in Chicago on November 17 and 18. Be sure to visit seniorhousingnews.com slash events for the latest updates on build and our other scheduled events. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.